Hello everyone, Rob Guest from Football.London here and welcome to the latest episode of Gold and Guest Talk Tottenham, sponsored by NordVPN. The 22-23 Premier League season is now done and dusted. Tottenham brought the curtain down on their campaign with a 4-1 win away at Leeds United. So we'll be reflecting on that win at Ellen Road as well as the season as a whole. Alistair Gold joining me as ever. Ali, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. We made it. I just can't believe we made it. We made it to the end of this long slog of a season. You say the curtain came down. I thought it was going to fall down a few times at Spurs. <laughs> it's just so ropey that club has been this year. Um, we made it. It has taken us all across Europe. Uh, sadly, we won't be doing that next season, but it's taken us from various places in the continent. Took us to South Korea last year, and here we are a year on. Not really much better for it um, at all, um, but we made it through. And uh, yeah, as a final day, there was plenty to talk about. A uh, long old day out in Leeds and coming back. And I know certainly the Spurs fans coming back with me on the, the tr- I think it was the last train back to King's Cross. We know of the issues with that, the delays, the getting stuck on the track, which very much felt like a perfect analogy of Tottenham season. Um, and here we are. Um, with only the future to look forward to. So hopefully um, there at least are some positives lie in that. Yeah, it really was a season full of uh, mainly downs, to be honest. It was just, I I was just having a look back at the start of the season and I think they'd lost one of the first nine in the Premier League. Was it the best start to a Premier League season? Yeah, yeah. So it started really, really well and then... It was so long ago. (laughs) Incredible, really. You just forget everything what really happened except for all the lows over the past few months. But we will get into that uh, a bit more later in the show. First we'll get all, into those lows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First of all, we're going to discuss the 4-1 win at Leeds. Harry Kane scoring twice. Pedro Porro as well. And a farewell goal from Lucas Mora. Ali, you were, you were at Ellen Road on Sunday. Uh a positive end to the season, even though there was no European football to come with it, come the final whistle. Indeed. Where were you Sunday, just out of interest? I was away. I was away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you were away. <laughs> Around Liverpool. Uh, <laughs> yes. If, if, if you can't guess, uh, Guesty was, he enjoyed his Sunday. He had a very good Sunday um, because his season ended very well indeed. Um, but yes, some of us made the trip to Ellen Road and and a very strange press box view. I, I just totally forgot about it. It's like a letterbox. It's such a strange view. You don't see anything above kind of, well, it feels like almost head height. So with Sam Allardyce football and the ball being in the air a fair bit, you actually kind of wonder where the ball's going to come down at times. You've just got this very narrow letterbox view. But um, obviously can't complain because we're we're there for free. Um, But yeah, as it was, only Spurs could finish this season, let's be honest, with probably one of their most professional performances, doing the job at hand when it absolutely didn't matter. (laughs) It just made no difference. It was the same for both teams neither uh, Leeds nor Spurs, the result mattered a single jot in the end because of what happened elsewhere. Uh, Obviously, Villa beating Brighton ended Spurs' hopes of the glory of seventh place and the Europa Conference League football. Um, And obviously, something quite decent for Guesty's side happened at um, Goodison Park. So that meant uh, that Leeds had no um, chance of getting up, which kind of made for quite a strange atmosphere. Um, 
it felt in like the first 60 seconds of like the crowd were like, yay. And then Harry Kane went, now nah, you're right. <laughs> and like about 90 seconds in, Spurs had already scored. And it was the same in the second half. There was like this renewed hope and optimism. <clears throat> and within about 90 seconds again, Spurs had scored again. And it was just like, right, okay, this isn't going to happen. And actually the Leeds fans kind of started to really aim their frustrations at their club and the board and the players were told they weren't fit enough to wear the shirt and there was some right some slightly dodgy chanting going back and forth as well between the Spurs and uh, Leeds fans which anyone there will know what I'm talking about um which can't really talk about on a podcast um but yeah it was it was just a really strange day it was a decent Spurs performance few positives in it some nice foundations maybe in there for the future as well and next season but ultimately everything they'd done beforehand in the months before caught up with them it just didn't matter what they did on that final day because they'd messed it up so many times in other games they ended up being completely redundant really um but yeah that doesn't mean there's not still enough to talk about in there. Um, and that wonderful man, Harry Kane, as well. Just He just... The mediocrity around him is such a shining light. I don't think I can think of any better example to show people of how amazing a player Harry Kane is than just to show them a highlight reel of his season compared to Tottenham around him. He's just been incredible. And I know we're going to talk about Harry Kane a little bit more depth um, to come, but... I just that that's one of my takeaways was just how dominant he was in the game and how much he he ran it and how you can only dream of what that club would be like if he were to kind of have really really strong team around him. Um, yeah, but again, we'll talk about Harry in a bit. But uh, yeah, as it was a nice day in Leeds to finish a wretched season. The perfect start as well. What, what yeah. we're saying, what, 90 seconds on the clock in Spurs. Yeah. yeah, Spurs already 1-0 uh, ahead, courtesy of Kane. Really good move uh, as well. Uh, some good movement from Pedro Porro uh, down the right. He was in an advanced position again, playing on the right of the three behind Kane. And Emerson picked him out, got on the wrong side of uh, Pascal Strauch, uh, squared it to Son, who in turn squared it to Kane. And it was just... Emphatic finish, really, uh, from the striker. And you'd expect nothing less than him going on the season he's had. It's been absolutely incredible. And I think going into the game, he would have been absolutely determined to hit that 30-goal mark. And he did it in style. Uh, two really, really good finishes. First one, certainly very good. Uh, obviously, that then does kind of up the pressure on Aston Villa, who had a tricky game at Brighton. But then... For Leeds as well, that really pretty much killed their hopes of staying up because they needed uh, Everton to lose and then Leicester as well, you know, to not win. So, positive start from Spurs and you're probably just thinking the end of this, where's this been all, all this time? In, especially in the, the final few months because they've dropped a number of points in games where they should have uh, won. But they do like to score a lot of goals in the final game of the season. It was five at okay. Norwich, uh, four at Leicester uh, the season before. And, you know, Tottenham did the job in the end by getting the three points, but just it was in Villa's hands. And, you know, Villa got the three points against Brighton and deservedly in the end getting that Conference League position. 
Yeah, maybe they just like to wind everyone up, Spurs. Maybe it's just at the end of the season to go, yeah, we can do it, but maybe we just choose not to <laughs> on a frequent basis. Um, just such a strange season. When, when you look at those kind of goals for and against columns, just, just how high both are, it's just so weird. It's just, it kind of does remind me of like kind of 90s Tottenham um, when they would be quite capable of turning over teams with a decent scoreline, but also quite capable of collapsing. And they've really, really felt like they've gone back to that this season. Um, yeah, yeah, very strange. But yeah, the first goal was actually Pedro Porro's run was was fantastic. It was a really nice run inside. And then I don't think really enough was made of the awareness of Sonny because he just knows Kane is steaming in and alongside him on the left-hand side. And... Yeah, it's it's a terrific Kane finish, like you say. And I thought the second one, we were kind of watching that back and just like, oof, such a nice finish from Kane. It was such a nice kind of curling classic Kane poacher finish. And then Porro's goal. Porro's finish was actually one that Kane probably would have been proud of. And we even touched upon, uh, which we will, Lucas Moura's um, mazy third, sorry, fourth goal of the game, uh, which was incredibly fitting and, and apt for him. But... Uh, yeah, and defending-wise, I was looking at some of the stats and the defenders actually did better than I gave them credit for at the time. I looked back at some of this, like, I think Longley made something like 13 clearances. I think I looked up. Sanchez, 11. Um, they were absolutely cleared their lines really, really well. And and obviously, Jack Harrison got that goal, but it, I wouldn't say you ever felt that Leeds were going to truly threaten Spurs. They never really looked like they had the quality to do so. Um, and you know, I know Allardyce said it after the game that they don't really have the, the they didn't have the squad that was good enough to stay up in the Premier League. And I think you could probably, well, the table doesn't lie, it's the old cliche. Um, but yeah, enough positives from Spurs that we can take little bits and pieces that we can um analyze and see what next season will bring for certain players. Um, yeah, yeah, it was <laughs> it's weird, it's because you kind of you want to be really enthusiastic and say, yeah, 4-1 victory, which at any other point in the season, we would have probably been like, yeah, fair play, Spurs. That's really good. You know, it kind of takes you back to the... It's top and tail, isn't it? Was it 4-1 against Southampton, first game as well? Yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the book ended the season with 4-1, <laughs> yet what came in between was so utterly mediocre. It's unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, we can't really go overboard because, yes, it was a very poor lead side. But there's enough little bits we can take out of it. Some little strands of hope um, as long as uh, everyone else above kind of uh, does what Spurs needs in these coming weeks. Yeah, I think one of the positives uh, for Tottenham in the final game was certainly the performance of Pedro Porro. I think I believe you gave him a nine in your play ratings. Uh, really strong display from uh, the Spaniard. Uh, joined the club in January from Sporting CP. Because of his attacking qualities, he was probably the player seen as the one who could, you know, revolutionise Tottenham in that right wing back area where they've had problems. And he's contributed with three goals and three assists in these uh, 17 appearances for Tottenham. A goal and an assist. Uh, against Leeds and going into next season, all the uncertainty surrounding the club at the moment. It remains to be seen where Porro will play next season because we don't know if the new manager is going to come in and he's going to want to play with 
a back four or he'll want to operate as Antonio Conte did with a back three and wing back. So Porro, as well as a number of players currently at the club, such as even Perisic, uh, Destiny Udoji, uh, Jed Spence, who were brought in uh, this summer, you just don't know where they're going to fit in because what we've seen from Emerson Royale when he's been at the club, that transition from moving to fullback to wing back might seem pretty basic for people, but what we've seen is it's far from the case, especially if, for a player such as Emerson who spent the vast majority of his campaign, uh, his career, sorry, playing as a, a fullback, so he doesn't have that attacking attacking mind. Uh, so for the others, it could work the opposite way. Uh, really, that's one we're going to have to wait and see. But I think Poro certainly made his case, especially with uh, Lucas Mora and uh, Dan Juma leaving that. Spurs are going to need another attacking option uh, next season. And we've seen from Poro that he can contribute uh, further upfield. Uh, he played really well in the game against Crystal Palace when it was the 4-4-2, had more attacking responsibility. What we've seen of him when he has played in the back for that, he probably has struggled at times. That was the case at Newcastle and Liverpool where uh, they took advantage of his uh, defensive uh, woes. But going forward, he's, he's looked really, really good and very good finish from him uh, against Leeds. Arrowed the ball into the bottom corner. Good pass from Kane and Poro's just there to capitalise on Strauch not being able to control the ball and, you know, found the bottom corner and then uh, a really, really good pass as well uh, for Kane. So I think there's certainly positives you can take from Poro going into the next season. And probably what I would say is look at Lucas Mora's first four or five months when he joined Tottenham, I think it was more a case of, you know, just getting used to the Premier League. Then you saw a totally different player come the start of the following season. And Lucas started 2018-19 really well. Obviously got that memorable double against Manchester United, which was one of his undoubted highlights from his Tottenham career. And I think if uh, Porro, you've got to look at the past four months, it's a bit of a learning curve for him, getting used to the pace and intensity of the Premier League and we could see a completely different player altogether uh, from August onwards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just trying to look back while you were talking to see whether he used to be a winger at all in sport. Someone suggested to me that at times he had played as a winger for sporting. But I know under Amarim he's definitely been a wing back um, within his system because this is the thing. I kind of feel with him that he's got more qualities to be a winger than he has a, as a right back. Um, and I think I kind of asked, uh, well, I did, I couldn't kind of, I actually asked Mason after the game, you know, could you see, um, I obviously didn't say it, but could, what he, he knows I was probably hinting at was more that if a manager comes in next season and plays with a back four, maybe a four, two, three, one or a four, three, three, can Pedro Porro, you know, become a winger? And some people have pointed out to me that they think he used to do that anyway in his early time at uh, Sporting when he first went there. But he was quite clear. He said, yeah, possibly, because he, he impacts a game. That was what he said. You know, he he's um, he gets up there and clearly he's got an ability to, to finish. He's got a good uh, shot on him as well. And I mean, assist-wise, how many is it for the season? It's like 14, isn't it? It yeah, it was 11 at Sporting, 3 at Tottenham, yeah. Yeah, so he's got 14 assists. Um, I can't remember how many goals he had. I put it in here. Actually, it might be in the, my notes down here. Um, 
but he's let me see i want to actually say it because it sounded quite impressive there we go 14 assists and six goals this season for uh, spurs and sporting so those are the figures that a winger would be very happy with <laughs> so he clearly has got that ability and i guess while he may not be the perfect right back, he will at least be able to have the energy to get up and down and track back and help out any right back. So I actually think there was a part of me that did... Look, let's let's be honest. It's still a strange decision when you look back on it to sign someone who would cost 40 million who very much was a wing back when you had a manager who, let's be honest, at that point, going into like January into February, we nobody expected Conte to be at the club the following season. So it was a very big outlay on a player that was very specific for his system. And I'm sure a lot of people after that maybe would have been a bit worried of, oh, rubbish, oh dear, he like he can't clearly play as a right back. What are we going to do if the next manager comes in with a back four? But actually, having seen his performances as a winger, I think there's a future there. I do feel like that's a future for him. Um, and everyone raves about him kind of behind the scenes in terms of, his desire to work and improve and listen to what the coaches say and take it on board. So that only bodes well for him. And if he has got experience being a winger in the past, which is something I'm not going to have to properly look into, to be honest with you. Um, but certainly we're seeing it out there. I, I, his crossing ability is fantastic. He's delivered some really good crosses in this season since he's arrived. And like you said, that that's a great point really is that it's exactly for me like Lucas Moura's first six months. It's very much, uh, let's see what you can do. Get used to the Premier League. Get used to your surroundings. Get a full pre-season under a new manager. And I think he could be very, very useful player next season. Um, and, uh, yeah, I like him. He's a popular guy around the club. Seems to always have a smile on his face. Um, and I think... He'll be one that will definitely be interested to try and, if we can get him on the summer tour, have a real sit down and a chat with him about kind of what he sees as the future for him. Um, because I think he can play a big part of Spurs. Don't, we mustn't forget he's only tw- he 23. So yeah. people kind yeah. of get carried away with foreign signings sometimes and they should be these instant, miraculous, amazing players. And, and unfortunately, when you see people like Decky and Bentoncourt come in and, and adapt so quickly, you kind of expect everyone to do that. And, it, you know, we're seeing with Decky this season how a bit, little bit more inconsistent he's been. It's not as easy as it looks. And I think if... if People show a little bit of patience for Poro. Poro patience. I think it'll um, they'll be rewarded for it. Yeah, uh, I think looking back at Tottenham's signings uh, this season, a lot of them haven't worked out. But when you look at Eves Bissouma, Richarlison, they've had injury issues. They've played a bit part role at times, uh, especially with Bissouma being behind Bentinger and Hoybeg in the starting eleven. Also having as well to contend with, you know, maybe. A different system, different tactics. I think he was certainly uh, frustrated a bit under Antonio Conte. Maybe didn't have the freedom he did like he did at Brighton. And we certainly didn't see the Eves Basuma at Brighton when he has been playing at Tottenham. But he's finished the season really, really well. So these can be players who potentially could be like new signings for Tottenham next season because we've not seen the best of them. Basuma, he did impress off the bench uh, against Aston Villa. Impressed again last week uh, against Brentford. It was certainly a rare shining light on what was a dismal day for Spurs. And I think you'd agree again that he played really, really well against Leeds. And I think he's finished the season on the positive. And that's the one thing he had to do after such a, you know, such a frustrating time uh, for him at the club following his move from Brighton. 
Yeah, you kind of just wonder, did he like come back after his injury and go, where's that Antonio bloke? <laughs> and then when they said, oh, no, no, sorry, he's gone. He's gone, yes! <laughs> Cause, because uh, whatever, well, I think the best way to look at it is Antonio Conte, he, when he trains his players, especially his midfielders, it's all drilled in about repetition. It's going over the same motions over and over and over again, the same runs, the same idea of where you're meant to be, what you're supposed to do. And when it works and everyone's in tandem and understanding what their roles are, it's fantastic. We've seen it. It wins him silverware. So you cannot deny the success of his system. However, you do wonder with a player like Basuma, who just feels more like, I don't want to say a free spirit because that's not true, but more of a natural box-to-box player who kind of wants to be involved in everything. There's a lot of instinct to the way he plays as well. Um you can imagine that under Conte, it must have been like, I don't want to say he was like in prison or anything, but certainly restricted, I guess, is probably the way. Um, it, it wouldn't have felt the same as his time at Brighton at all. So I think Conte clearly felt similar in the, we saw early in the season when he was saying that he wasn't ta- he was tactically struggling to take some stuff on. He wasn't as good as his defending and his mind he had to improve it. And I don't think it is any coincidence that he's come back, Ryan Mason, with a, a more kind of attack-minded 4-2-3-1 formation, which is probably more similar to what he was used to at Brighton. Shock horror, we're seeing more of the player that was one of the best Premier League midfielders in recent years. Um, again, you could argue about recruitment. Rather than blaming Conte, that's maybe a recruitment thing. Why are you signing a player who doesn't exactly fit the system that you know Conte was going to play and the methods he wanted to use. So, yeah, I um, was really impressed by Basuma uh, at Ellen Road. I thought he was dominant for much of the game in that midfield. I'm very impressed with his fitness levels. Bear in mind, he's only come back recently after three months out and he's essentially played, what was it, that half hour and then, is it both 90-minute performances? I'm trying to think. He didn't come off in uh, well. I know he came off late in this game, but technically it was almost a 90-minute, wasn't it? Um, was it 70? It might, I might be actually being very generous. It might be in 78 minutes. But either way, he's played a lot of football suddenly and he hasn't looked knackered or tired or anything. Um, and I think where I said at the start of this that it kind of it bodes well for next season, some little things. Basuma, for me, is one of those things. Um, you know, I think... When Basuma signed for Spurs in the summer, a lot of people were very much like, even like outside the club, but other clubs were like, okay, fair play. That's some really good business there. Um, and, you know, and questions were asked of Brighton, you know, how would they respond and, and how would they deal with losing him? Obviously, we know Brighton's way is that they do replace and recruit very well. So they've been absolutely fine. But for Spurs, he should have been a much bigger addition than he has been. So... Yeah, this is a promising end to the season, I think. Get a good preseason under his belt as well. Even last year's preseason, he, he got COVID uh, towards the end of it. I think he ended up having to stay in Korea, him and Fraser Forster, for a couple more days. Um, was it was it Korea? I'm trying to remember if it was Korea yeah, or Israel. Yeah. No, it was, it was Korea. Korea was it? Yeah. Yeah. So that that in itself, people maybe underestimate how much of a part that played in, in not kind of giving him that proper preseason he had. And, and you know, the little after effects as well that you can get with COVID in, in the kind of the time afterwards. Um, so yeah, this was a real positive and I'm excited to see what Basuma does next year. And also excited to see what the best pairing is because we're going to have less games. You're probably going to see a more consistent midfield duo. Um, 
under Conte, he never really was able to break that Spencer-Hoybier partnership. But I think in a different system, that could be a whole new ball game, uh, quite literally a whole new ball game. Um, and I think those two are going to find that he's going to have a much bigger part to play and, and a lot to say next season. Yeah, 100%. Right, I think there's one other person uh, we need to speak about on this podcast, and that's Lucas Mora. Uh Previous weekend, bid a tearful farewell uh, to Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Really emotional moment for Lucas, and we was, weren't sure if that was going to be his last Spurs appearance. But obviously then uh, he was given some playing time by Ryan Mason at Leeds, and he capped it off in style with an incredible goal. We've seen Lucas time and time again during his Tottenham career going going on these weaving runs and going nowhere and just running into uh, opposition. But this time, everything came right. Uh, Darted in off the right, evaded four challenges and a really, really smart finish past Joel Robles. And it was just good to see the celebrations, all the players running over to the far corner of Ellen Road to join him. And then the substitutes bench as well. Uh, They're really, really fitting way for him to bow out as a Tottenham Hotspur player. Yeah, no, it was perfect. I mean, I asked Ryan Mason after the game about it and he said if Lucas could have kind of, that's exactly how he would have dreamt about it last the night before. That's exactly how he would have wanted to finish his time at Spurs. Um, and let's be honest, the goodbye at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium was an absolute shambles. It was, <laughs> it was apart from the fact that the game was horrific and, and they lost, you know, the embarrassing nature of Tottenham pumping up that stadium speakers meant that even his kind of final lap around the pitch was just drowned out he wasn't able to connect with the fan it was just oh it was embarrassing from start to finish to be honest so this was a lovely moment for him just to say a proper farewell he did you know he scored that lovely goal which was trademark lucas i said that and i, I tweeted that and i had someone complaining to me say it's not trademark because he doesn't score lots of goals like that but it, what I meant was it was trademark in the what he was trying to do. We've seen him so many times beat three players or try to beat three players and then shoot a goal. We know that, unfortunately, a lot of the times, the second or third man will get a tackle in. So it is trademark in terms of what he was attempting to do. And just thankfully for him, the last time he tried it, and it was pretty much almost the last kick of the game, probably the last kick of his Tottenham career, um, he puts it in the goal. And yeah, Pedro Porro, Emerson and... Um, Richarlison absolutely sprinted off the bench, led all of the subs, and they kind of held him aloft. It was a bit like escape to victory of Pele. It was just a really lovely kind of moment. He was up there aloft in front of the fans, and then a couple of minutes later, or moments later, when the whistle went, he went back over there, and the fans were singing, there's only one Lucas Mora. It was it was a lovely moment for him. Um, and his... Uh, his farewell tour has pretty much been going on a week at Spurs. He's been working his way around the building, going into each department, saying thank you and goodbye to everyone. He even came down to us journalists before the press conference on Friday, and a few of us were there a bit early, and he came down and shook hands and said, what did he say to me? He said something like, uh, I think it was something like, thank you for all your coverage, even when you criticise me. Um, and it was a bit like, ooh. Well, I think, to be fair, I think he understands this. It's what we've got to do, you know. And this is the thing for Lucas. And it's always been my one main issue with Lucas is that I think he is far more talented than what he is 
produced as an end product. And I think that's the only thing. He's given so many wonderful moments to the fans and to us as journalists. You know, if it wasn't for Lucas, we wouldn't have had the Champions League final. We wouldn't, I know it didn't end particularly well, but we wouldn't have had that night in Amsterdam, that incredible kind of moment. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm thinking back, he's such a player of moments. You look at it, you think of the night in Amsterdam, the night at Barcelona at the Camp Nou when he scored a really important goal that helped Spurs go through. Uh, you think about uh, goals at Old Trafford as well. You think about goals that the Etty had. He, when there's big moments, he's often come through for Spurs. Um, but just for me, it's just about the consistency with his t- has not equaled his talent. Um, you look at it, and as he said himself, that's his first goal of the season on Sunday, in the last game of the season. He's much better than that. He's so much better than that. And I look back at his stats. Um, let's have a look. I think I've got him here with Lucas. It is, he's been at the club for five years, and he scored 20 goals in the Premier League you know, across 152 appearances, only 16 assists. And that's always been the issue for me is that Lucas, he says he's not a killer. He's not like a, a an upfront Harry Kane type striker. That's fine. But then I'd argue he's not really a winger because 16 assists in five years shows that he doesn't create enough for others. And it unfortunately leads you to the question of exactly what is he? I guess he's a dribbler. Um, I remember when Mourinho tried him as a number 10 for a little while and it looked like that might actually work and it never kind of progressed beyond there. Um, But look, there's no doubting the memories he's left Spurs. There's no doubting um, just taking him on face value for us as journalists to to interview him. He's always been a joy, a very intelligent guy um, and the way he's dealt with us as well. And clearly very, very popular within the squad. Um, very emotional chap, as we've seen in the last week. He's probably shed enough tears to fill the River Thames, quite frankly. Um, and, and that's lovely because it shows his connection with the club and how much it clearly means to him. And he's one of those that you know you'll see in many, many years to uh, to come, coming back to Spurs and being among these kind of very much loved and respected figures that you uh, you see in the stands or as a pundit in the studio, maybe, and things like that. And uh, yeah, I just wish him all the best. And it'd be interesting to see where his next step is. As a free agent, he should have a, a quite a lot of choice. Yeah, I'm sure sure he will have choice. He's a good player. He's still what, early 30s, so still got a fair few years left yeah. in his career. I know there's been a lot of talk about him going back to Brazil, and I'm sure he will at some point. I don't know whether it is going to be at this stage of his career just yet because... I'm sure there'll be clubs in Europe who want to uh, give him a contract for the next year or two. So that's what we're going to have to wait and see. But I think a lot of Tottenham fans will be keeping tabs on Lucas, how he gets on, because like you said, he just give everyone so many great moments that they will cherish forever. On Sunday as well, uh, there was a couple of moments that two young players will certainly cherish forever, and that's Matthew Craig and George Abbott, who came on for their senior debuts. Matthew Craig came on for the final 13 minutes of the contest, and then uh, George Abbott came on in stoppage time. In terms of Matthew Craig, we've seen him in the matchday squad on a handful of occasions in the past. Uh, most notably towards the back end of last season when he was pretty much on the bench you know every week for probably a good month just because of the amount of injuries what had impacted Antonio Conte's team at the time but 
the game time never come, came for him, despite his appearances on the bench. And George Abbott, I think he was on the bench for, was it the Bournemouth game recently? Or Brighton? Yeah, one one of one of those. Brighton, I can't remember now. But yeah, he was definitely on there recently. Yeah, so uh, great to see them both on the pitch and hopefully we'll get to see both of them uh, play a bit more for Spurs uh, in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, it's a huge moment. I know people may see it as like a little token thing or something. It's not, and Ryan Mason made very clear. I asked him about them afterwards, um, and he said this was no gift. This was players that really deserve to have their minutes. I mean, George Abbott's had been terrific for the under-18s this year, and Matthew Craig's in a very tough year for the under-21s, has been one of their shining lights. He's been so good. Um, And yeah, what I think people underestimate is just how important this is for an academy. You know, to have seen these two players, you know, Abbott's 17, Matthew Craig is 20. To have seen them come all the way through that academy and eventually end up playing Premier League football is is huge. It's absolutely... That's... That is the end goal of an academy. Of course, there are many other goals within an academy, and that is to develop players for their professional careers, whether that be at Tottenham or not, whether it ends up being in the Football League, abroad, whatever. But the ultimate goal is to make them play Premier League football for Tottenham Hotspur. And to see it happen, it was fantastic. I was watching their interview. The club did um, uh, a really good interview we know it's difficult with young players when they haven't been fully media trained their answers can be very short they can be very nervous and i just thought it was a really good interview because the interviewer who uh, we know very well um did it expertly in, in terms of just guiding them just guiding them along into different ways and having lots and lots of questions and it ended up being a really nice little kind of insight into these two guys who were clearly just absolutely over the moon that they made it, but also had a real sense of this only being the beginning. There's no way they can rest on their laurels and think they've made it because this was a taste of what they can have. Um, And yeah, we had a really kind of strange final minutes of like stoppage time, which I think there was a 17-year-old and two 20-year-olds in the middle of the pitch with um, Pape Matassar as well. And it was like, okay, because, you know, for me, we're going to talk about the future. And personally... It's the kind of football I like to see. I like to see kind of young, hungry players in a team. I think some of the best. I mean, we've seen it with that lot down the road this season, a very kind of young, average age in their squad. And I think you get a hungrier, more determined squad out of it. And I always preferred Spurs when they had that um, younger feel to them. It was more exciting. You could connect with the players better. And especially if you could get players that come through the academy even better because they've got that kind of real connection to the club as well. So... Yeah, great day for them. Um, And, you know, if there's any better inspiration for any academy player at the club, it is certain Harry Kane. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. We've seen a number of players come through the academy before. They might make a couple of appearances at the club and then go elsewhere. But you get players such as Harry Kane, who've just become an absolute mainstay in the team and just become so, so vital for club and country. And that's that's what you want to see. And it's just really good to see them having spent years in the club's academy to come through, make the debut. And then hopefully, as I was saying, there's just more opportunities for them there. And I think I've watched George Abbott a couple of times in the UEFA Youth League uh, this season and really, really impressed with him. Uh, he's certainly got a bright future ahead of him at 17. Matthew Craig as well, when I've seen him, he's uh, played really, really well. So it's uh, 
he's good to see. And hopefully, with the new manager coming in uh, next season, we'll have to wait and see whether they'll be looking at bringing these academy players through into the first team because they might have, you know, a different philosophy to compare to Antonio Conte uh, when he was at the club. So some good players there. Hopefully there'll be a few chances for them in pre-season and then they'll just kick on from there. And there could be uh, some more game time from coming in the 23-24 campaign. Speaking of the academy, uh, I think there's one player we definitely need to talk about a bit more and that is Harry Kane who had... A fantastic season for him to get 30 league goals in this struggling Tottenham team has been nothing short of miraculous really he has just been a shining light for Tottenham over the course of the campaign it's not just in terms of the goals he scored as well it's just his general play assisting build up everything he has just been you know a warrior for Tottenham this season he's just been so so good and any other year, 30 league goals, you're winning the Premier League Golden Boot. I think he's just been incredibly unlucky to have Erling Haaland, who's just been a machine at Man City, to net 36 Premier League goals. And, you know, if he'd have, if he'd have managed to get the Golden Boot this season, that would have been his fourth during his time at Tottenham. Yeah, well, this is the irony, isn't it? He's become the first player to score 30 or more goals um, in two Premier League seasons, or seasons with 38 games in them anyway. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and both times he's done it, he hasn't won the Golden Boot. <laughs> it's so unfortunate. You know, Salah got it the first time, Haaland this time, and every other time that Kane's won the Golden Boot, the three other times, he's done it with a, a lesser total. I would say, you know, he deserves some kind of trophy just for managing to create a score that many goals in this Tottenham team I still maintain I would struggle to see Haaland scoring that many goals in this Tottenham team you know Haaland is an amazing player don't get me wrong and he will only go on to become even more amazing because he's so young but I think that's an incredible feat to score that amount of goals within a Tottenham team that has not created as many chances as uh you know as as those better clubs out there right now. And, you know, you look at some of the things, I was looking at some of the stats with him. So Kane's 30 Premier League goals have been responsible for bringing in almost half of Spurs' 60 points this season. <clears throat> we talk about, you know, what would they be without him? They'd be in relegation <laughs> problems. That's what they'd be without those goals. And everyone could quite easily say, oh, yeah, yeah, but you can't say that because you'd bring in another striker. That striker was very unlikely. It's, a, it's no guarantee that he's going to score the same amount of goals as Harry Kane does and also bring everything that Harry Kane does. Um, and since Spurs went out of the Champions League, it's almost like Kane has stepped up even more for the club because and country. In his 14 matches since the Spurs went out to AC Milan, Kane scored 14 goals for club and country. It just has not stopped. He is a machine. Um, and like you say, Haaland scored 36 Premier League goals compared to Kane's 30. But actually, Kane had a better shot accuracy, 63% to Haaland's 56. And he became the first player to score in 26 different Premier League matches this season. It's just, he is a machine. He is incredible. And I think it's only now some people are starting to wake up and, and kind of say, see like, Oh, do you know what? Yeah, we've all been focused on Haaland, but oh my goodness, hasn't Kane had a good season? It's like, yeah, we know. He's literally been one of the few shining lights at Tottenham. He's been incredible. And do you know the other thing that I don't, maybe has gone under the radar? 
it's he's played every single Premier League game. And now you look at it, the last three seasons, what happened to this guy that was absolutely injury prone and was never going to be able to produce his best again because injuries were getting the better of him? Honestly, I looked back and in the last three seasons, the most he's had out were three games, um, one little spell of two and one single game out with injury in the Premier League. Um, his last, I think I've got it here, his last like longer spell was in 2020, was that thigh problem? Do you remember that like, ruptured his thigh, wasn't it? And he was out for, he got it on New Year's Day. Um, that's the last time from New Year's Day 2020 when he's had more than two Premier League games out injured. It's just it's just mad. I mean, last season pretty much only missed the start, didn't he? Because um, No, not last season. The one before, the Nuno season. He, he missed the start, didn't he? Because uh, <laughs> it was a little bit iffy at the start of that season and we weren't entirely sure what was happening with Harry Kane. Um, but yeah, I, I just find it funny because we were even reading articles, people saying he was done. That was it. He'd reached his peak. He is at his peak now. This is the best Harry Kane. And I do know what, I think because of this injury thing, and it's another testament to the incredible way he always looks to improve himself. He has looked to improve his body. He's clearly strengthened his ankles. You know, he goes down and there's less worry now when he goes down that he always turned his ankle again or something. And I think it comes from some of his kind of the people he admires, like Tom Brady, uh, the NFL quarterback for the, the Patriots and then the Bucks. He obviously now retired, but you know he was playing into his 40s. And he was a guy that was very, very much about physically trying to make himself able to compete with these younger guys. And, and it, that was why his peak was able to extend to such a further, longer amount of time. And it's, it's very interesting that he's one of Kane's idols because you can see it in Kane. I can imagine Kane playing well into his 30s, but I still have this theory that I think he will stop just before you might expect him to, and he'll go across the NFL and try and be a kicker, just to kind of realise that dream. Um, and uh, but yeah, fitness-wise, I think fitness-wise, talent, everything. He is absolutely at the peak of his superpowers right now, and unfortunately for him, he's at Tottenham. Not unfortunately for Tottenham or the fans, but unfortunately for him, he's at Tottenham, and we now approach this situation where. He's coming into these last 12 months of his contract. Um, personally, and this seems to be the view that's kind of shared within the club as well, it feels like maybe this summer isn't the one that he's going to head off. Um, it feels like if there is a time he's going to leave, maybe it will be at the end of his contract. I mean, you look at it and let's be honest, Hugo Lloris probably, unless the next manager comes in and desperately wants to keep him and tries to convince him, you'd imagine Hugo Lloris goes that means Harry Kane becomes captain, let's be honest. Of course you're going to make Harry Kane your captain of your club. That's that's what he is now with Lloris out, and he's the best player at the club. He deserves to be the captain. So in a romantic sense, maybe you look at it and he spends his final year as the captain of the club trying to lead them to something before he heads off. From a pragmatic point of view, for Spurs, they would probably look at that and say, well, at least that's another 12 months for us to try and convince him to stay. And if things do go well, and maybe he does manage to get a trophy, then, you know, I think it's been said a million times, but I agree with it. To win a trophy at Spurs would probably be worth 10 at some of those other clubs. <laughs> it really would. To have broken a, a many, many decades long drought of trophies, to even win an FA Cup 
would be probably more so than and this is it's difficult to say this because Kane is not going to be a bit part player anywhere, but we've seen players at other clubs that have literally rocked up, got to move to a big club and have won a league title despite not really doing much to contribute towards that. Um, and I don't think that would be the case with Kane. I'm sure Kane would go anywhere and score ridiculous amounts of goals. But I do stand by the point that I think a trophy at Spurs is worth so much more. Um, I still have this kind of theory in my head of maybe in his mind as well. And this is not to say it's what he's thinking. It's me kind of projecting what I think maybe you would think is that maybe if you get to the summer of 2024, maybe Haaland goes to Real Madrid and Man City are then looking again for a striker to lead their line. Uh, maybe that's the way I look at it. The one that really scares me is maybe at that time a certain uh, Argentine at Chelsea is looking for a striker, which would be the most painful double heartbreak I think Spurs fans could ever have. Um, I mean, we've, we haven't even touched on Mauricio Pochettino in Chelsea yet. We're going to have to have a... Oh, I'm going to have to have a chat about that at some point as well. Um, but yeah, with Kane, I, I just, for me, I don't see the perfect exit route for him this summer. I know United is the obvious one where people talk about, but I think Spurs would off ask so much from United to pay. I, I do wonder whether for United it becomes not bad value because Kane's going to guarantee you a certain amount of goals, but it becomes maybe more of a risk a player who will be 30 to spend that sort of money. And for Kane, I, I wouldn't say, I know United have won the Carabao Cup and they've got the chance of the FA Cup, but I wouldn't say they're an automatic guarantee of more trophies next season. You don't still don't know entirely what way they'll go. I'd say City is probably your only guarantee of trophies right now in England. Um, and obviously abroad, moving abroad, I've seen him still linked with moves abroad. He's kind of very clearly himself come out and said he doesn't want to go abroad. And also, we know he's going for Shearer's record. So it would seem an odd move to to say, nah, maybe not then, and go abroad somewhere like Bayern or Real Madrid. Um, so yeah, for me, it just logically points towards another season at Spurs. And, and look, I know that's not fair. I don't think it's fair for Harry Kane at all that he should continue to play amid such mediocrity whatsoever. Um, but I just think, unfortunately, that's, well, unfortunately for him, that's that's the way it probably is going to play out. You know, we don't know what's going through his mind. He might sit down in the weeks ahead, have a rest with his family. I don't know whether he's going to have another holiday with Ryan Mason, as they have in some summers before, and whether he sits there and just thinks, no, you know what? I've done my time. I've done everything I can for this club. I'm not entirely convinced about, because we don't know. He might not be convinced by what comes next at Spurs and who they bring in. It may be a bit like another Nuno situation for him. And he may publicly come out and say he wants to leave. Um, we haven't seen him do that thus far, but you never know. That could be a route he decides to take. But whether that shakes Daniel Levy's kind of idea, I don't know. Because when you look at it, it well, I'll ask you this question. If you're Daniel Levy, do you sell him at any price? At the end of the day, it's in Daniel Levy in Tottenham's hands because he's still contracted for next season. And given everything what's gone on at the club over the past, you know, six, 12 months, Tottenham can't afford to lose Harry Kane at all uh, this summer. So for me, I'd probably expect him to still be a Tottenham player come August and then uh, they go from there. Uh, even if Kane is to depart on the free transfer, you know, come 2024, you can still potentially help them achieve a Champions League finish next season. And then, of course, you've got an extra year to try and convince him to 
extend that contract uh, if possible uh, as well. And hopefully if the manager comes in and wins trophies, that could just change his mind straight away. Because I think for him, given his targeting Shearer's record, they'll want to do a, just one club. And as you were saying, just winning trophies as well at the club he's grown up at, that'll mean so much more than going to Manchester United and winning a League Cup next season or, or something else. So, yeah, it's in it's in Tottenham hands. Uh, just what you mentioned on the fact he's had an injury-free season over the past few years, I really hope you've not jinxed him now. <laughs> if we know, so we know now come August if he's injured we know who to blame now yes because <laughs> you mentioned then as well just on true. the amount of goals he scored this season I think you've just got to give credit to Kane as well for the way he reacted after the World Cup because things oh, could absolutely. have quite easily gone in the opposite direction for him given he missed the penalty what would have put England through to the semi-finals of the competition and he reacted straight away that Brentford game scored a really, really good header, didn't he? And he, he's just carried on from there. So, you know, full credit to him. He's had an absolutely fantastic season, whereas Tottenham as a whole have struggled. And you're just hoping that he'll still be a Tottenham player come next season and then the year after that and the year after that as well. Just only because it perfectly is fitting. And there's literally this quote has just come like popped onto my phone as we're talking about Harry Kane. So I think Emerson Royale was at a charity match last night, wasn't he, with Richarlison at Dagenham. Um, and it looks like someone must have grabbed him after the game. Um, there's a little quote that's come out from him about Harry Kane. For me, he is number one in this position. He wants to stay with us. I want to play with him for a long time. <laughs> that, thank you, Emerson Royale. That's, I think that's going to be a quote that Spurs fans are going to absolutely love. Um, whether he's speaking out of turn or not, I don't know. But hey. Who knows? Emerson. Emerson, I trust everything Emerson Royale says, quite frankly. So, yeah, if he's saying that Harry Kane wants to stay, then fantastic. Um, but, yeah, that was perfectly timed. It was almost like uh, whoever released those quotes knew that we were just speaking about him right there and right now. Um, yeah, I still go back to the fact that if I'm Daniel Levy, I what let's say 80 million, which I don't even think, man, you would be able to get him away for. What do you spend that on? With no disrespect, in the modern football landscape, you've got to sign a striker and a playmaker to replace Kane. 80 million, that's a massive gamble, thinking that that's going to get you anyone near replacing what he brings. I mean, um, what's his name? Osmichen, Osmichen, the uh, chap at uh, Napoli. They're talking about 120 million for him. And there's no guarantee that he'll come to the Premier League and score the same amount of goals. And he's certainly not going to be the creative force that Harry Kane is. So for me, I just think you're better off, even if you're writing off the 80 million, I think you're better off next season with Harry Kane than you are with the money. I'll be honest with you. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I genuinely think that. And uh, yeah, we'll see. Hey, Emerson Royal say he wants to stay anyway. So I'm all aboard the Emerson Royal train and... Uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But um, fingers crossed, Emerson is spot on. On the subject of someone committing the future to Tottenham Hotspur, I think one player we all want to see uh, complete a permanent transfer to the club is Dejan Kulisewski. He was speaking after the Leeds United game on Sunday and he was asked about his future. Ali, 
what did he have to say then? Sorry, say that again. You, you cut out very slightly and I couldn't hear you. Dane Kulaseski uh, was speaking yes. about his That future. was all. Sorry. It was the name. <laughs> and it was one of those where I thought, do I keep talking and just come out with something about and guess which player you were talking about? Yes. Dejan Kulaseski. Um, yeah, it was quite interesting. He he kind of said he's still got to talk to the club and the club have to talk to him about the future and plans and exactly kind of what's, I guess, what's on the table going forward um, and, the, and their hopes and everything. And he was, he said, absolutely, I love the club, but obviously we have to see what happens next, which is quite interesting because it's it almost suggests that as if he's got to make his mind up and that doesn't appear to align exactly with what we understand the deal to be. So I should stress, and I've been stressing this before, and I keep double-checking this, and and this is the very latest information, is that Tottenham Hotspur fully expect to take up the option to sign Dejan Kulisetsky in the summer. So that's that's one side. But from what I also understand, it seems to be the case, is that his permanent uh, kind of contract was agreed back then in January 2022 when he signed as well. It's a bit like Romero. When Romero signed initially on loan from Atalanta, it was already agreed what his contract was going to be um, with Tottenham uh, for when the permanent move went through. And from what we understand, it seems that that's the case as well with Kulusevski. And it simply is a case of, that. all right, well, you've previously agreed that. So it's like, get it with us, whatever now. Um, and if Spurs press the, hit the green light, press the button, whatever. The option is taken up. It's 30 million, uh, well, it's 30.2 million pounds, 35 million euros. He is a Tottenham player. It's as simple as that. So I don't know whether this is just an element of not saying, well, hopefully they want me. I don't know. Um, Or whether there is something that nobody is aware of and there is a little clause that maybe because they extended it into the second year, I don't know. But it certainly seems to be that the feeling is that he um, that's it now. As, as soon as they they say yes, take the option, pay the money, although the money is payable over five years as well, it's such a good deal. It's like a no-brainer. You know, I know Kulusevsky's had a, <clears throat> a little bit more of an inconsistent season this year, but he's 23 years old. He's only going to get better and better. And he's such a hard worker. And he fits so many roles within a, a many different systems as well. So for me, thirty million pounds spread across five years—it's just like I don't even know why you'd even hesitate. And you know, I think we've said this before. He's featured prominently on all of the marketing for the game in Bangkok on—I think it's like late July, is it twenty-third, something like that. That's way after his loan deal ends. That is—you don't use him in prominent marketing for a game if he is not going to be there for that game. Um, I know there's been talk in Italy that he was going to return, but honestly, everything I hear out of the club is they fully expect to take up that option in his contract um, in his uh, agreement. So, yeah, I, I'm really excited about the future of Kulusevski. I think he's going to be a fantastic player. Um, we saw what he could do last season. We've seen it in more glimpses this season. Uh, I do think that, as all young players have to do, he's had to adapt to defences knowing what he does, and that's going to bring out the best in him for me. It'll make him more unpredictable as well. Um, he said himself, he felt, you could tell he felt 
to say that his whole season hadn't been a good was unfair. I think in his mind, he's had a couple of injuries, one before the World Cup and one after. He felt that, yes, his form did dip around February for about a month, and he said that was too long. He said play, all players will have a little dip in form, and he, he kind of said that should only be for a week or two. He felt for the, for the the fact that it went on for a month was too much, and he felt that that's a failing of his, something he needs to improve on. Um, and yeah, I think we've seen in recent weeks he's he's come really kind of come quite strongly back into the fold. And in his own words, yeah, he maybe hasn't contributed the final touch, the final pass, but he felt that he has contributed. And I think that's fair. I think he's been involved earlier in a lot of moves that have led to goals. Um, yeah, for me, I think he's got the potential to be world-class. I, I believe that last year, and I still believe that even after a slightly indifferent season this time around. I think if he is trained and coached properly, he could be one of those players we're looking at as a as a hundred, hundred and fifty million pound player within a couple of years. And I think thirty million spread across five years is peanuts for a player like that. So uh yeah, yeah. Hopefully Spurs get that one tied up, sorted soon. Um and look, I know some people are saying, Oh yeah, but what about the next manager? If the next manager might not want him, I'm sorry. Every manager should want him. He's going to fit any one system. He's going to be class and he's going to be one of the best options. And, you know, with Lucas going as well, uh, that's another kind of a space in there. I would not be wanting to lose Kulisewski at all. I think you would regret it and he would go elsewhere to another club and be a superstar. So, yeah, hopefully we'll see that tied up soon. Even if you didn't want him as part of your plans for next season, you'd still sign him anyway, especially for thirty million, because then you can just make an instant profit because he's worth so much more than that. Now, anyway, he's really, really good play. He's just not had the best of seasons, unfortunately. That brilliant form he showed, you know, immediately after his move from Juventus just hasn't, you know, come off for him this season. Uh but he was a miss for Tottenham around October when he was out for a month because Tottenham was struggling to create chances in games and then everyone pointed to the absence of Kulisewski. So all those numbers might not be uh, as impressive or as high as he wants. No, he still has a big impact on the team and yeah, it's just, as you were saying, it's absolute no-brainer. It's a transfer bargain. You'd be stupid not to take up the option. So yeah, fingers crossed that's one they'll get over the line very soon. Right. Uh, I think we're way past the halfway point of this show, but <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Ali, do you want to let us know, everyone, tell everyone about the benefits of using NordVPN? Of course. As you may be aware, the Golden Guest Talk Tottenham podcast is sponsored by NordVPN, and you can use the service in a host of different ways to enhance your internet experience. NordVPN is the fastest VPN in the world. That means there's no buffering, no lagging, and you can stream your favorite shows from anywhere in the world without your bandwidth throttling. It's something I've used many, many times, way before they were sponsors of this podcast. It was a service I was using when I was going on holiday, and if I wanted to see something, um, if I wanted to catch a program that I normally watch in the UK, um, and for work purposes as well, it's coming very helpful when I'm abroad. And not only that, but it's also very secure if you want to use public Wi-Fi abroad. It stops any of those nasty cyber thieves and criminals getting into your device and taking anything off of it. Um, and not only that, the outlay on a NordVPN subscription is cheaper for you in the long run. And that's because you can purchase streaming services or bookings from other countries at a much cheaper rate. Uh, so let's say, for example, you could book flights from other countries, which could be cheaper as well. So it means you're paying out for Nord, but you're actually saving money overall. There's a whole host of other benefits from signing up to NordVPN, so why not give it a go? 
You can grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash gold guest to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four additional months for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Right, we'll discuss Tottenham missing out on Europe now uh, following that 4-1 win. Do we have to? Yeah, I think, I think unfortunately we need to discuss it. Yeah. <laughs> so following that 4-1 win over Leeds, coupled with Aston Villa beating Brighton 2-1, Tottenham finished the season in eighth. That means there's no European football on the table for next campaign. Even if Man City go and win the Champions League, uh, I think a week on Saturday against Inter Milan, there is still no other place for Tottenham uh, in Europe this season. Uh, next season, sorry. So... Yeah, something you just can't believe it's even come to this because they've been in the top four for the vast majority of the season. And even a few weeks ago, after that Liverpool defeat, you're still thinking they're a few points off the Champions League. It's still possible, if even if they can just you know, get the results together and build a bit of momentum going into the final game. But they've just lost too many games, drawn too many uh, games as well and it's come to no European football for Tottenham, what is the first time it's happened in a long long time and I think for Tottenham they must ensure that this doesn't happen again for the club. Absolutely it's so weird when you look at it like Brighton massively praised from all quarters. Everyone, quite deservedly so, you know, deservedly so. You know, they've had wonderful football, um, brilliant results across their season. They finished two points ahead of Spurs. It's so weird this season, isn't it? It's like, I don't know whether that's just because the expectations are so much higher at Spurs, so it's even more disappointing what's happened to them, or whether it is just purely the case, as we said earlier, that Harry Kane is so important, he guarantees you a certain amount of points and goals. I don't know. But it just shows that how differently two club seasons can be looked at. Um, it, it's just incredible for the sake of two points difference. And Spurs, yeah, we, they, they were absolutely have tumbled from where they were. And it was, it's really difficult because when Conte left, they were technically, were they still fourth technically? But obviously other teams had a lot of games in hand. It was, it was, it was one of those, it was a false position. It was, it felt, you know, he, he couldn't quite rightly say, I left them and they were in fourth, look at them now. But I'm pretty sure Brighton still had like two or three games in hand. I think Liverpool had games in hand. I think everyone underneath pretty much had games in hand. Um, and yeah, just to end up with no European football, for me, it's really disappointing. I know the fans that love going on those European away trips. You know, we love doing covering them as well. There's something different there. Um, you get, you know, wonderful nights like even this season in Marseille with Hoybier scoring that late winner. You get some incredible nights um away in the continent as well so it is a shame for a club that you know i think it was 2009 the last time they had a season where there was no european football to look forward to it's got its pros as well as the cons i think the cons are definitely you know financially there's an element to it as well and i think the fact that they've missed out on champions league football it means you're going to you know just i think people are going to be quite fanciful about their transfer targets um in the summer and they're going to forget that you haven't got Champions League football to offer them. That's a big thing for some of these big players. That's a, a, massing, a massive missing thing. And I do wonder whether that lends itself back to what I was saying originally about 
maybe having to sign young, hungry players rather than top, top tier players um, because those younger players maybe will be happy to take the step up, whereas the top tier players will want to play understandably Champions League football. Um, so, yeah, it, you, yeah, you said it yourself. It should not happen again. Um, this should be a temporary situation. And as of such, make the most of it. You know, Kulisevsky said the same. He said, you've got to look at the one upside, and that is the fact that now you have a lot of free full weeks to prepare for matches. You're not going to be as tired as the other team with their massive fixture schedules. Ironically, <laughs> one of the best people for the job would have been Antonio Conte in terms of he was very good with um, no midweek matches. You always felt his team was very well prepared. But but he is no more. Well, he is. it's not like he's died or something, but he is no more at Tottenham. And um, yeah, they've got to make the most out of it. I do think it will have big implications for the size of the squad. I don't think you can have a big squad that I think a lot of fans would want. You know, we're always, and us as well, we're always calling for depth and stuff like that. With no European football, I don't think you can do that. You know, you've you've not got many midweek matches to keep them happy. Um, you're going to have to have quite a streamlined squad and then supplement it with academy players and young players that can come in. Um, it's going to be one of these where I think people have to really be fully aware of the reality of the situation and what it means. And, and I know it's difficult when we're fan, you know, uh, you want the best, best players to join. And I mean, let's, for example, use someone like uh, Bastoni at Inter Milan. Bastoni would be mad to come to Tottenham this season. I don't think he will. I think it sounds like he's going to sign a new contract at Inter anyway. But let's be honest, fans, I'm, I'm sure over the coming weeks, I will see someone on Twitter go, why don't Spurs go back in for Bastoni? Have some ambition. Bastoni is in a Champions League final. He's about to play in, isn't he, with Inter Milan. Um, next year, uh, did Inter... Probably going to get Champions League football again next season, aren't they? And they yeah, they're top four, aren't they? So, why? <laughs> why would you give that up for Tottenham Hotspur, who will have no European football? It's, I think this is unfortunate where we're going to have to all be a lot more realistic next season. Uh, sorry, in the summer, especially in the transfer window, of what they can do. So next season is going to be about the quality of the coaching, the quality of the recruitment. You know, we were talking about Brighton and, and you've got to really take a note from teams like that of being able to find this, the talented players who are at that level where they're not looking at Champions League football yet. The undiscovered gems, people like that, and, and turn them into gems. This is what Spurs did used to be able to do, you know, Pochettino era. That was not a team of players of world beaters you know but he turned them into a team that was top three for three years in a row he turned them into a team that went to the champions league final um he turned them into a team that was beating the likes of real madrid in the champions league at the time and and uh, some very big nights in europe so it's not the be all and end all it's it's not like do more gloom if they can't sign 100 million pound players in the summer <clears throat> They've just got to sign the right players. Um, and it's what makes these weeks ahead so crucial in terms of who they appoint as that head coach and who they appoint as the director of football. They need to get it done soon. I think Chelsea bringing in that uh, very well-known Argentinian chap um, the day after the season ended is another big sign to Spurs of, come on, what are you doing? You you know, they uh, Conte went before... Potter, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So, you know, they've had longer to try and sort this out. Um, 
it's huge. It's huge. It's such a defining moment in the club's crossroads, really, and path and where they go. Um, they can't fudge this one up. We cannot end up with a, to be honest, you can't end up with a Paratici type who wants completely different to what the club wants in terms of the style of football. And you certainly can't end up with another Nuno that is title-winning Nuno now um, after his uh, his exploits out there in the Saudi League. Um, they've got to get it right. They've, I think Ryan Mason has spoken so eloquently and interestingly about the subject on in Friday's press conference, but also after the match on Sunday, about the need to not crowbar people into the club that don't fit their identity that they want to try and do. I think clearly he's talking about the likes of Conte and probably Mourinho there. And he's spoken very clearly about having a conviction of what they need to do. And this is what makes me chuckle. When, when people have kind of been saying about like this, this whole rubbish you hear about oh, Mason's like Levy's puppet and all this sort of stuff, I actually think, other than that one thing where he said about Levy uh, being let down by others, which is true to an extent, there's been moments when signings that he's been told to make, the likes of Tongi, Lacelso, big, big, big signings have not worked. Some of the coaches that he's brought in that have been very high-profile coaches of maybe, or, or even directors of football, has not worked out for him. I wouldn't 100% agree with the view. I do think Daniel Levy is responsible for a lot of all the decisions made ultimately in the end of the day. So I don't think you can argue that it's it's anyone's fault really other than him in terms of the big decisions made. But what I would say is those that kind of saying that he's just a Levy puppet, I actually think he's criticised what the club has done a lot. I think a lot of what he said has pointed to a lack of direction and that comes from the top. Some bad decisions made, that comes from the top. And now he's saying essentially get your act together, decide what you want to be and then stick to it. That's as clear a message to Daniel Levy as I could possibly imagine. So I don't fall into this narrative of he's just a yes man for Levy. If anything, I'd think he's he's almost the opposite. He's kind of challenging Levy to get it right. Um, of course, he wants a job himself, so he's not gonna he's not gonna go. Oh, you rubbish, Daniel Levy. He's not gonna say that. He wants the job, but he wants to obviously. He's not gonna cut sever ties with his potential employers or his current employers as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think change is going to naturally happen this summer. And I think it's very key that the change extends all the way to the top and that Daniel Levy just gives trust to other people to make the football decisions. You know, I know there's obviously there's a lot of fans that want him out of the club. And we heard the chance again at Ellen Road on Sunday. But ultimately, he's a guy that owns, what, about a third of the club. So getting him out is not going to be something that happens instantaneously, even if he wanted to. What I think would be a sensible thing, even from a business point of view, if he's going to look at it from that sense, is that is uh, you're bringing in Scott Munn. He's supposed to be responsible for all football-related activities. Let him be responsible for it. Let him make decisions. You bring in a new director of football, trust them. You bring in a new head coach, trust them. I saw a really good tweet, was it yesterday, where someone was saying, the difficulty for any head coach coming in is that it never truly will be their project. It'll always be Daniel Levy's project. And I thought that was actually a really interesting tweet. It's true. It's true to a degree because ultimately, if he can't fully trust and have the conviction of backing these people that he's selecting, then ultimately it will always be his project because he'll always be, in a sense, interfering. So, yeah, I think this is a very, very key time for the club um, and what direction they go in next. And, and like you say, change is the operative word.
Yeah, uh, very much so. We're going to have a look back on the 22-23 season. Now we've got a number of categories uh, we're both going to give our thoughts on. So, Ali, we'll start with you. Maybe not so many to pick through in this category, but uh, your best moment of the season? Best moment of the season? <laughs> yeah, there's not many, are there? Um, <clears throat> I think that one I mentioned, Marseille away, that was pretty cool. Um, we kind of thought that was all and uh, had gone hideously wrong and then Spurs turned it around and Hoybier scored that very cool late goal in the dying seconds. That was a good one. Um, I think, albeit against a, a Chelsea that is not full, fully where it wants to be, I think the win against, kind of back-to-back wins against West Ham and Chelsea was a good little period as well. Um yeah, I th- it's difficult to go beyond that. Obviously, loved Lucas's moment on Sunday. That was wonderful as well. Um, Harry Kane becoming the all-time top scorer, having the big TIFO there behind him. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, they're just more few and far between this season. Skippy. Skippy scoring his first goal for the club was pretty cool as well. Yeah, uh, I think for my best moment, I was going to say... Harry Kane becoming the club's uh, all-time top scorer in that game against uh, Man City. I don't think many people gave Spurs a chance against City as well. Even though Spurs have this absolute incredible home record against Pep Guardiola's team. But, you know, they went and won 1-0 with Harry Kane becoming the club's all-time top scorer. So I think that would be my moment of the season. I think a couple of other notable ones for me, I'd probably go with Son's hat-trick against Leicester because he, yeah. he desperately needed a goal because uh, he'd gone well, about seven or eight games without scoring. So I think that was certainly one of the moments of the season. And another one, I'd also go with Richarlison's double uh, against Marseille in the Champions League because Tottenham fans had waited a good two years to get back into the competition uh, wasn't the best of games didn't look like they've gone to win and then Richarlison popped up with two headers and for a player who desperately wanted to play in the Champions League to score two on his debut in the competition I thought it was a, a really really good night and just unfortunately there wasn't too many good nights in Europe uh, over the rest of the season so I think those would be my moments so worst moment for you <laughs> there are so many for that one. Oh, it's got to be that day in Newcastle. Honestly, sitting there in the pouring rain, watching one of the worst things I've ever seen a team do on a football pitch. They looked like a bunch of schoolboys that had just met each other and weren't even aware how to play the game of football. It was horrendous. Um it was just, they didn't know how to change it. Poor old Christian Stellini looked absolutely lost on the touchline. Um, on a personal level, we were getting so soaked that our laptops were getting soaked. We were kind of like, what do we do here? Everything is going to explode as well in front of us. Um, <clears throat> it was just horrendous. I, I There were a few lows this season, but I genuinely... <sighs> Bentacor getting injured, I think, was a really bad way. We knew how bad that was at the time as well. Uh, we could see him kind of scream or hear him screaming. Uh, but for me, that Newcastle game was just the absolute nadir, the worst um, I've seen. I've seen a few 
hammerings that Tottenham have had over recent years. But for me, I don't think anything was that bad and so almost violent in the way it happened and with such a short space of time. Yeah, uh, I think I agree with you on the worst moment. I don't even really need to add anything other to that because it was just a complete shambles that day from start to finish. It was just horrendous. Right, goal of the season then. Goal of the season. Um, Contenders. I thought Harry Kane's against Brentford was a cracker. That could be up there. Um, Sonny's against Brighton was up there as well. Even Lucas is for the emotional value of it on Sunday. It would be up there. Um, Do you know what, though? Not because it was as good quality as those, but I just thought for what it represented, I thought Skippy's goal against Chelsea. Just because it wasn't, you know, like I say, Kane and Sonny's strikes were, were more technically better goals. But for me, what it represented... An academy player coming all the way from, I think he was at the club from like six or eight years old to have come all the way and to score such a huge goal in a London derby against Chelsea. He didn't even know how to celebrate. It was just like, it was just such a lovely moment. So yeah, I'm going to pick that as my goal of the season. I'm going to go for Sons against Leicester. The first one, one as as I was saying, he just needed a goal desperately because they'd not they'd not come his way uh, at the start of the season and yeah he was dropped down to the bench for that game and came on and just found the top corner uh, with a f- stunning shot from outside the box and Tottenham Hotspur Stadium just erupted and he just seemed to give him this confidence uh, lift because he scored another cracker a few minutes later and then went on to complete his hat-trick so that's what I'd go for my goal of the season and uh, Another one, what would rank highly for me, uh, maybe not the best goal uh, when you look back at it, but it was Emerson Royals against West Ham. Uh, yeah. The counter-attack with Good the move. two wing-backs high up the pitch, that's what we wanted to see, what Antonio Conte wanted to see in terms of his wing-backs. And Ben Davis and Emerson Royal were higher up the pitch than Harry Kane at that moment. It was really composed yeah. finish from him. As well, so uh, yeah, for me, Sonny's would be goal of the season. Now we're going to do biggest what if moment, and for me, uh, you could pick a number of these, but I think it's an easy choice, uh, and it's the goals, the late goals are conceded at Southampton. What happens if Tottenham went and held on and won three one at St Mary's? We probably wouldn't have seen Antonio Conte's uh, explosive post-match press conference. Although you really I wouldn't think, have shouted at <laughs> I think we'd have still got it at some point in the running. It wouldn't have been yeah. then. I think it, that was just bubbling uh, for a long, long time and just uh, waiting to come out, given the performances, what his team had offered. Uh, I mean, if they didn't concede those late goals, Conte could still be in charge right now. Tottenham could be in the Champions League at worst, probably Europa League. Uh, so for me, that's just the biggest what-if moment of the season. I think others, I'd probably say, what happened if Tottenham won at Anfield? So they had all those chances, probably shouldn't have conceded late on. And then another one, what if they won at Man City when they were winning 2-0 at half-time? That might have just given them a 
bit of a confidence boost uh, going into February, such as the AC Milan games and the other games as well. What the loss after that, that could have really given, uh, you know, a huge, huge confidence boost going into the remaining part of the season. But that just wasn't to be the case. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with an injury. What if Rodrigo Benzenker didn't go into that challenge and didn't get his cruciate ligament injury? Um, he was, for me, just behind Kane, was one of the most influential players for Spurs this season. He was saving them in games as well. He was just such a big presence and such a, a player for the team to look to to kind of get them out of the hole with Kane. It meant that they weren't just purely relying on one man. And I just feel the moment they lost him, they lost a lot of belief as well. And I was going to go as far to say, I think had they had Benton Kill, might even have finished top four still. I think they might have even still finished in that. So that's the biggest what if for me. Um, just such a shame. And, and hopefully he's uh, on track and uh, we'll be back sooner rather than later next season. Best sign in then for you? <laughs> what a bunch to pick from. <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the most successful in terms of transfers this season. Um you can look at this in different ways. If you can look at it purely in numbers, you could argue that even Perisic contributed a fair bit for no transfer fee. So if you're going to look for value and numbers, you could maybe go for Perisic. You could maybe say as potential for the future that Porro has shown that he's going to be something quite decent. I still think I've probably got to go for Fraser Forster because even though he's a free, he's a free transfer, and he's ended up having to come in far more than he probably expected this season. And I don't really feel he's done too much wrong. And I think there's a massive indictment of the season that, you know, you've splashed out 30 million on Basuma, 60 million on Richarlison, 40 million on uh, Porro. You spent, you know, upwards of what will be, crikey, it will be something like maybe 150, 160 million all in when you take all the other transfers into account. You know, we're forgetting about people like Jed Spence and things like this that ultimately a free backup goalkeeper in his mid-30s is going to end up being your best season. It's the biggest and damning indictment of their whole recruitment policy. And I think it doesn't bo- it doesn't reflect well on Fabio Paracci either. I think Fabio Paracci obviously has got other issues in his mind right now, but his recruitment at Spurs, let's be honest, pretty awful in terms of fitting in with the manager. Um, that's the biggest thing. Whether or not these players go on to be terrific talents under different managers is one thing. But to actually buy for the manager that he had, you know, some people maybe argue maybe he was compromised because of the club he was in and, and what he had to get and what the club wanted to get. But my goodness, yeah, I think it's Fraser Forster which says everything. Fraser Forster as well for me. It's yeah. a, a pretty easy choice. And that just sums up that obviously – transfers what Fabio Prastici brought into the club just didn't have the impact he wanted I mean it says it all when it's a free transfer who is providing cover for your number one keeper is your uh, signing of the season but I think a number of the other ones can come good in the long run uh, Bissouma, Richarlison, Destiny Dodgy as well, Jed Spence if he's ever given game time uh, I think Longley's been a decent addition on loan. Yeah, Longley, actually. I forgot about Longley. Yeah. yeah. 
not Solid. someone who's going to, you know, totally upgrade your defence, but someone who's come in and done steady, provided good cover when he's been called upon. I think in terms of a loan, that was a good signing. For me, Perisic, yeah, you can look at the numbers, but I've been really, really disappointed with Perisic. So I just expected so much more, given what he's achieved for club and country in the past. Always posted really, really good numbers uh, for Inter Milan and just the one goal for him, uh, which came Southampton in March. And I think the relief on his face uh, said it all. And I think he'd been waiting a while uh, to score. So, yeah, Fraser Forster. Uh, most disappointing signing then? There can only be one really, can't there? I mean, with Basuma, you can argue the injury in the system, but Richarlison at £60 million as a player very, very well adapted to the Premier League already to have come in and, let's be honest, he did better for Brazil than he has for Spurs. Um, obviously, the World Cup and injuries. Um God, the amount of times that he's whipped that shirt off to celebrate a goal that never was, there's probably more goals than, it, than the actual goals he scored. And yeah, it just hasn't worked for him. I'm hoping next season is a biggie for him and that he comes good, that he uses the experience from this and uh, and and becomes better uh, under the next manager. But yeah, for a £60 million player who, you know, club record I don't know whether technically add-ons for others take on more than that but as a very very expensive player what he has produced has not been enough yeah it's Richarlison for me as well just given you've spent 60 million you expect you know a big impact uh, goals and assists from him but that's just not been the case injuries have you know hit him hard at times three separate spells out on the sidelines maybe hasn't been given Game time, he probably should have done when others ahead of him in the pecking order were, were struggling. Uh, you know, it has impacted a few games when he has played, but you just expect so much more from a £60 million player. Another one who would put in the most disappointing signing, and this is no fault of his own, just because he hasn't been given the game time, is Jed Spence. Uh, so yeah. I didn't. We're looking at him at the start of the season, given Tottenham's previous issues at right wing back. You're probably thinking, yeah, Spence played really, really well at Forest the previous season. That led to his move uh, to the club. But for whatever reason, Antonio Conte uh, decided not to play him. Uh, he did mention during the tour of Israel that he was a club signing. And I think it was six games he played for Conte uh, before leaving for Ren in uh, in France. So, yeah, disappointing signing. But as I was saying, I think he's one of these who could potentially come good in the future. But that's all going to come down to the new manager giving him game time. Right, final category. I think this is the easiest category and I'm <laughs> sure we'll have the exact same answer. Player of the season? Well... Uh, Matthew Craig's had a fantastic season for the under-21s. Um, no, of course, he has had a fantastic season, but it has to be Harry Kane for the first team. He has been just incredible once again. I was looking at the list of Tottenham finishes and Tottenham seasons, and alongside them, everyone, it had Harry Kane top scorer, Harry Kane top scorer, Harry Kane top scorer. 
just the, for the overall goals each season he scored in all competitions is just honestly I feel privileged to have watched him play football um I really do and you know we've watched we've been lucky enough to watch the Ronaldo's the Messi's of this world play football in front of us live as well um and I I genuinely would say that Harry Kane for me has given me as, as much as enjoyment as watching players like that. And there are things he does that take your breath away sometimes on a football pitch. Um, and in terms of a finisher, obviously you've got a Haaland now, but I, I think he has to be out there. He and Haaland, for me, maybe as finishers in the world have to be up there as, as the top two, perhaps. And maybe being... Maybe showing some kind of uh, bias there to the Premier League, and people can quite rightly point out other people that other like we say. Oz, Oz, oh, I'm going to pronounce his name right. Osmihen, Osmizen, Osmizen, Osiman, Osiman. <laughs> I keep forgetting the S's at the start. Osiman. He's obviously had a fantastic season, but I just think for a continued, prolonged period of time, I think in terms of finishes, Harry Kane has to be absolutely up there. Um. He's he's just remarkable, and yeah, I think if Benton Kerr had had more of the season, he might have been able to really put his hat into to be at least thought of. But ultimately, no one's got close to Harry Kane this season. He's been incredible. Yeah, Harry Kane, Player of the Season, never in doubt. Uh, don't forget as well to vote on the football.london uh, Tottenham player of the season award. There's four in contention. Harry Kane, Rodrigo Benzke, Pierre-Emil Hoiberg and Emerson Royal. Uh, I'm actually intrigued to have a look at these results, see who gets votes and who doesn't because yeah. I think everyone's told us on social media, why are you bothering with this? It's Kane. Because <laughs> so, we had to. Yeah, we know. We know it's Kane. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, if you've not voted already, please do so. Right, before we call it a day on this podcast, uh, you mentioned Maurizio Pochettino briefly. Yeah. We'll just discuss him for a a few minutes now he signed a, a two-year contract with Chelsea he does the club do have an option as well to extend it it's uh Tottenham fans have been discussing this I think a number of disappointed that he's uh gone uh some probably angry at the club as well for obviously not making a move for him when Tottenham themselves are looking out for a new manager your thoughts Ali on on his move across the capital yeah that there's so many different ways to look at this and I can see this reflected in social media when I see what people's reactions have been. You've got the people that are just really angry that he's gone to them, of all people, why a local rival? And I get that. There's people that are really angry with Daniel Levy and the club for not even bothering to contact him and allowing this to happen in a way. There's also kind of a, a school of thought that is both of those thinking it's like why has he gone there but also why didn't we stop it and then there's some people i think it's just so fed up with spurs right now they just don't care either way for me i'm kind of somewhere in between the first two i there's a part of me that 100 understands that if i'm a football manager and the previous club have shown no interest in contacting me whatsoever. I have every right to go to another club and, and talk to them. 
There is also, I must admit, though, a little bit of disappointment that he has gone there because this is a club that obviously are known to be one of Spurs' biggest rivals. They're a club that he, whether he meant it in a way to wind up Arsenal or not at the time, he did actually say once are a bigger rival to Spurs and Arsenal in his mind. And he has obviously spoken in the past about not wanting to go to rival clubs with Espanyol. It was never going to Barcelona. And he also spoke about not going to Arsenal. I guess technically he didn't say going to Chelsea. But yeah, I do think I can understand why it leaves a little bit of a sour taste for some fans, especially as this guy, you know, was very much someone that you could clearly tell loves Spurs and, and wants to come back one day. And maybe it's easier for him now as a, as a Chelsea manager. Maybe that's the way to become Spurs boss is to be a former Chelsea manager. Um, and it, I think it's going to be very difficult for people to wish him well. <laughs> There's a lot of Spurs fans that will not want to see him do well. Although some may think, well, it sticks it to, to Levy in the club, I guess, is what they'll, they'll look at it as if he does do well. Um, I still am bewildered at the fact that Spurs didn't at least have a conversation with him about it. That, for me, seems bizarre when you're looking for the next Pochettino not to consider the current Pochettino or the always Pochettino. Um, yeah, I thought it was quite interesting as well, the length of contract. Two-year deal with an option for a third. That's very much breaking away from what they've been doing recently of slapping in these 20-year contracts for everyone. Um, I did think that was quite interesting, whether that comes from his side or not. I think at Spurs, other than the one big long contract, I think his were often, maybe his first deal was roughly that length as well. But yeah, it's not great. I do think it's quite interesting that we currently have a Mason disciple, uh, sorry, a Poch disciple in Ryan Mason at the club. Um, look, I don't, I'd be stunned if Ryan Mason were to end up with the job right now. But genuinely, I do think a lot of people think that Ryan Mason will eventually become Spurs manager within the club. And he's done, from what I understand, a lot of good stuff behind the scenes in, in improving the environment, bringing departments together. And everyone I've spoken to in different departments, departments within that club tell me that what Ryan Mason has done in the last couple of weeks is going to make the transition so much easier for the next manager. Um from what was kind of left, unfortunately, under the Conte is very look, is a terrific coach. You can't argue with what he did last season, but I think the club itself was quite fragmented towards the end under him. And I think Mason has done a, a big job in trying to repair a lot of that um, and bring people back together again. So, you know, maybe the Pochettino disciple is there for the future in the long term, but I don't think, um, yeah, it's going to be strange seeing him in the home dugout at Stamford Bridge and certainly the away dugout at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Yeah, very much so. Uh, for me, it's just why he goes to Chelsea. They were your biggest rival during your tenure as Tottenham manager. No, people will always say, obviously, Arsenal are traditionally Tottenham's rivals, given they're from North London. But I always thought there was more of a rivalry uh, with Chelsea, especially when Pochettino uh, was manager. So at the end of the day, he's, he's got his reasons, but I just. He's previously said he wouldn't go to uh, Barcelona because of his Espanyol ties. Why then go to Chelsea, giving you links with Tottenham? But yeah, he's obviously got his reasons. Maybe it's one of those, well, you've not contacted me over this vacant job. Uh, sod it, I'll go to Chelsea then, maybe. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see him. How he does at Chelsea, I mean, Chelsea have had an absolutely horrific season, finishing in the bottom half of the table, but 
they've still got some really, really good players at Chelsea and maybe it's a good job for him to go in and rebuild them. Chelsea certainly will be much, much better than they were uh, last season. So that's going to make things tricky uh, for Tottenham and I think all eyes are going to be on the fixtures when they come out on Thursday, June the 15th, just over two weeks away and then we'll find out uh, when Maurizio Pochettino will be visiting Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and when also Spurs will be visiting Maurizio Pochettino's uh, Chelsea at Stamford Bridge as well, so that's going to be really, really interesting. Spurs-Chelsea is normally an early game. It normally throws it up within the first two or three games. Can you imagine if it's the opening game of the season? <laughs> oh, my goodness. It, it could well be. It could well be. But uh, we'll find out for definite in just over two weeks' time. Right, this has well, been a bumper podcast, hasn't it? You could yeah. tell this is an end-of-season special. Wow. Yeah, over an hour and a half today. I think probably the longest ever podcast by far. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, right. We'll leave it there then for today's latest episode of Gold and Guest Top Tottenham. As ever, just keep with us at football.london for all your latest Tottenham news. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash gold guest to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four additional months for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee.